I was at the process of, you know, expanding and working with a business mentor um, and went back to the U.S. for a business trip for a week. And then as I was getting ready to come home, I was in line ready to board the plane and I actually got arrested by U.S. Marshals and they took me into custody and I ended up sitting in a high security jail a hecta for 1,352 days. They have actually realized that this invention that came out in the 30s or 40s or whenever it was has changed our entire trajectory as, as mankind. And the thing was the rubber sole on sneakers because it disconnected us from the resonance of the earth. Prior to that, it was leather shoes or it was, you know, whatever, or we'd be around barefoot, right? We don't do that anymore. We all basically want the same things. You want to have love, you want to have peace, you want to have happiness and joy, and you want to have abundance, and, and you boil it down to the core things. If we all want that, why can't we have it? Welcome to Mind Burst, a podcast about fighting burnout. Here is Karin Volo. Okay, well, I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. And uh, wow, we only have half an hour. I can't believe how we're going to fit everything into that half hour. But there's so much I want to ask you. Where to start, right? Yeah. <laughs> but where did everything start for you? That's an excellent question. How far back do you want me to go? As far as you <laughs> feel is relevant for us. Well, um, since we are doing um, things in Sweden, I'll start there. I am half Swedish, but I grew up in the States. So that's why my Swedish is not always 100%. Um, in 2000, I moved to Sweden because my first husband had been convicted of fraud. And I did research when I got here and found out that he had lied to me about everything from day one. So I just had to kind of shake that off and restart my whole life here, realizing that, um, you know, I had two children, beautiful daughters by a man I really didn't even know who he was. So that to me was like a major life crisis and I was in my early 30s at that point. So I basically rebuilt my life here and I professionally have always worked in executive search and coaching, mentoring. Um, I've been doing that for many, many years and I'd worked a very successful, I had a very successful career in headhunting in the US. And then when I moved to Sweden, I started up with that career as well and it was going phenomenally well. And then in 2006, um, just to kind of touch on this interruption in my life, both professionally and, and personally, I was at the process of, uh, you know, expanding and working with a business mentor to, to expand this business throughout Europe and went back to the U.S. for a business trip for a week to work with our business mentor and had like this phenomenal week where everything was going really, really well. It was like, you know, one of the best times of my life. Things were falling into place, had clients calling. And then as I was getting ready to come home, I was in line ready to board the plane and I actually got arrested by U.S. Marshals and they took me into custody and I ended up sitting in a high security jail a hecta for 1,352 days. 1,352 days. Yeah, I counted every single day. Um, that basically works out to about three years, nine months and nine days actually in a, you know, 10 by 12 cell shared with three other women over that entire period. Um, and it was a nightmare. Basically what had happened was that my first husband um, had used my name in Mexico while we were living there since I was born in Mexico and they were trying to extradite me to Mexico. So it was a really, really complicated situation. And, you know, for me, it was trying to survive through those days, through those years. And really, you know, dealing with the uncertainty, the, the frustration, the anger, the, the I mean, I just had such 
feelings of being completely lost and out of control in my life for those so many years and just living one day at a time trying to get through it, not knowing what was going to happen. Um, and it took that long before my case actually came in front of a judge in Mexico and it was com I was completely exonerated. He closed down the case. He said it should have never been a criminal case. And it took several weeks for that to get back to the to Sweden, I mean, to the US, and then I got released. And uh, so basically, it was just, you know, years of living a complete nightmare, and trying to find ways and strategies to stay in a positive frame of mind. And one of the things that I was doing was a lot of mental training, this visualization of I had this movie, every time the negative emotions would take over, I would stop myself mid track in those thoughts and switch over to this movie of my charges are dropped, I'm released, I get to go home, go back to my family, my daughters at the time, um, they were six and eight, so it was a very, you know, traumatic experience for all of us. And uh, basically, you know, we managed to get through it. When I came home, well, let me back up. Exactly what I was visualizing for those long, that long period of time is exactly what ended up happening. My charges were dropped. I was exonerated. But during those years, I learned a lot of different things on how to find ways to stay in a positive frame of mind and how to, you know, deal with whatever was coming up. And I learned so many lessons from that. Um, in terms of, you know, how how we may be in situations where we can't control what the circumstances are, but we can absolutely control how we respond to it or how we react to it. Once you learn to manage your emotions in a very, you know, conscious, deliberate way, that can affect your whole life in a very positive way. So are these tools that you kind of brought with you in, into that place or did you learn it inside? Both. So I had started a journey. I was always into personal growth and development for many, many years. And then um, while I was there, one of my strategies for staying in a positive frame of mind was escaping mentally through reading books. And I was reading, you know, three or four books every single day, just trying to escape mentally. Oh, every day? Not the whole book. Okay. I would <laughs> rotate chapters between these books. But yeah. Fast reader. I mean, I, was re I read a ton mm. during that time. It's funny because now it's, you know, almost, what is it now? Um, nine years afterwards, 10 years afterwards, and I, I, I have a hard time reading books still. Yeah. <laughs> I read about two a year, maybe. <laughs> How was life in there? Is it a, like a busy life where you need to do a bunch of things? Or no, is it a lot of waiting? there's nothing to do. Nothing? Nothing, nothing at all. So it was it was really challenging um, period of my life. And uh, as I mentioned, you know, this mental training that I was doing, it was this visualization and it was very clear. And so every time those emotions would take over, I would switch over to that. and. Um, that's what ended up happening in the end. And so when I came home back now in 2010, January of 2010, I knew deep down I was supposed to take what I'd learned into the world. And I was supposed to take it in the business world. I just didn't know how I was going to do that. So it was a bit of a journey, you know, a healing journey coming out of that situation, getting back to living a normal life. There was a big adjustment period for about two years, basically. I was, um, you know, readjusting to life, spending a lot of time with my family and my kids and uh, trying to figure out where do I go from here? Because I knew I wasn't supposed to go back to the headhunting. And so I really, one of the... Oh, sorry, how did, how did you know that? Well, that's what I was just about to get to. Oh, good. Sorry. <laughs> so one of the things that I learned is to really listen to this intent or in intuition or the um, kind of the nudges that we get. And we're not taught to listen to that inner voice. We have a lot of, um, of information that comes to us. We have a lot of you know voices in our head that talk about 
things that are going on in our life. It's like that mind chatter or whatever. But there's always this very clear, deep down voice that if you're quiet and you quiet your mind through meditation or through taking walks in nature, that you can start to hear and listen and you get little nudges, do this, do that. And you don't really know why. But if you start to listen to it, you start to see that your life can unfold in really wonderful and miraculous ways. So I had learned to really tune into that. Um, and this comes back to you know our topic here of trust, because when I met my first husband, my first reaction to him was stay away from this man. The second time I met him, it was the exact same thing. And then over time, we kept running into each other. And over time, we got to be friends. And then, you know, it ended up that I ended up falling in love with him. Um, and, you know, it, it's just kind of interesting because we're not taught to listen to that inner voice. And I often think back to that, like, what was it that I was getting that I didn't listen to later on? Why didn't I do that? So that had always been something I'd been, you know, wondering about. And that's what I like to talk about, you know, in terms of self-trust. It's learning to understand your intuition and how to, how to listen to that. So when I came home, I had this deep voice inside of me saying, you know, you need to teach what you've learned. You need to take it into the corporate world. They need this. And I was like, okay, how on earth am I going to do that? Um, so the journey on that path was really um, ended up writing a book uh, called Engage uh, with my second husband, Sergio, um, who did an amazing job through those years. And uh, basically, um, this book came out, Engage, and that led me on a path of speaking, which is <laughs> kind of funny because, you know, they say public speaking is like the thing people fear the most, <laughs> like higher than death. <laughs> And uh, I hated public speaking. And actually, it was funny because in college, I took a, uh, a speech communication major. And I got away with only doing one public talk because I hated it. I just didn't ever want to do it. But what changed after this book came out was that I was very purpose-driven. I had a mission. I had a purpose of bringing joy to the world and bringing joy to the workplace. So I was willing to do whatever it took, and still am, to, to get that message out there. Yeah, we, we talked a lot about, in a, in a different episode, about... Uh, uh, reflection, having time for reflection. And uh, I mean, people do go into you know, solitude and, and to reflect uh, voluntarily. Uh, and you didn't do it voluntarily, but you, you, you did it. You, you had that space where you could be with yourself and really reflect on things. Even though you didn't do it voluntarily, what did you feel came out of that for you? What did you learn from that? Um, you know, it's funny because, yeah, it wasn't voluntary, but yeah, I did have a lot of time, like four years of sitting and just trying to figure out how to survive. Of course, I would have much rather preferred sitting on a mountain in, you know, <laughs> <tight> <laughs> something like that. Oh, give me that any day. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I really just learned so much. And it was really, for me, even though the external circumstances were horrific, the internal journey I went through was pretty, pretty amazing because I had so many experiences of confirmation of so many different things. Um, you know, trusting the intuition, learning how to manage my emotions. Yeah, just protecting myself, playing with energy. It was really interesting because, um, you know, I can give you a very clear example um, that I've shared a, a few times basically, but I was learning forgiveness. I was practicing a lot with forgiveness and I was taking this course basically and uh, so I was doing these mantras in my mind about forgiveness and I was taken to a courtroom or to the courthouse uh, one time and I was in the middle of this I was just repeating this mantra in my mind to myself and it was you know I don't remember the exact one but it was something like I love you I forgive you you know something to those 
to that effect. And there was this long corridor that we were supposed to walk along. And as a woman, when you walked along it, all these men would give you catcalls. And it was very, you felt very uncomfortable and you felt like a piece of meat and it felt horrible. So this particular day when I walked down this long corridor, I was just repeating this mantra and I just saw these people as, you know, even though most people probably would have been afraid of them, I saw them as human beings in cages and scared. Whatever they were going through, they were scared. And that was like the base human emotion, right? And so I was just repeating this mantra. And as I walked this long corridor and turned the corner, the um, the guard turned to me and he said, you know, that's never happened before. That was weird because there was not a single sound, nothing, no cat calls, no whistles, nothing. And that to me was such a visceral, like, wow, this stuff really works. So I really started to work with the internal stuff, just about your thoughts and emotions and how that goes out. The interesting thing to this now is that in my work now, I have gotten into a lot of the neuroscience and, you know, the study of the heart and the mind and how to connect that. And science is catching up to being able to realize and measure that we have this electromagnetic field around us and our brain has one level and the heart has a much stronger level. And it's fascinating to see because the science is catching up to describe a lot of these things that, you know, kind of more spiritual people would talk about. Yeah. And I mean, that's that's uh, becoming more and more obvious now with quantum physics, for example, that things like telepathy that we thought was just, woo, you know, <laughs> that you, uh, you know, that took some drugs to get there. Uh, it's actually not that strange if you look at it from a quantum physics point of view, because there's um, entanglement and you can have an entangled particle in one part of the world and one in another, and they can communicate instantly. And that's, that's not, that's physics now, that's science. And uh, who knows what we'll find out next, you know? So, um, and, and I think we're seeing a huge um, shift in the way people look at the world, the way people look at their lives, that they, you know, I, I, I truly believe we're not born to be miserable. And people are looking for meaning. They're looking for purpose. Um, you know, and I think it's interesting now in this day and age where we're so connected through technology, which is great, but it's also causing a lot of disconnect. And, uh, and so people are evaluating their lives and thinking what's important, what really matters. And, and when you come down to it, most people, the face-to-face -face interaction, the conversations that you can have in a, on a physical level give the most energy to us. Um, so it's, we're living in some really fascinating times. And when we come back to you know, looking at the working world, um, there's so many dysfunctional cultures out there with companies. You know, and over these years since the book Engage came out, I've been working with engagement and how to, you know, be the best version of yourself and really get the most out of work. And then it comes down to if there isn't a level of trust inside of the organization, it makes it really difficult to work on these other parts where, you know, it's the purpose or it's the engagement of the company. So my work has pulled me back into trust, which I think is fascinating because on a personal level, like I said in the beginning, that has been one of my biggest lessons in, in life. Yeah, I mean, if you don't, if there's no trust, then you really have to stay on top of everything, especially if you're high up in the organization, you really need to stay on top of everything because you don't trust anybody to do things right, right? So so you, you get so much on your plate if you can't trust people to do their part. Well, yeah. trust to me is a, a 360. Mm -hmm. So it goes like if it's, if, let's just say you're the CEO of a company, it goes to your board, it goes down to your employees, it goes to the teams, it goes to, um, you know, the customers, it goes to the vendors, the suppliers. I mean, it goes everywhere. So regardless of who you are, um, you know, I wish there was a tool out there that we could measure kind of, you know, our level of trust because some people are really 
give too much trust. Um, you know, and if you give too much trust and you don't have a good level of discernment, you become very gullible. And um, I'll admit that was me when I met my first husband, right? I trusted him impeccably and I shouldn't have. Um, and then you've got people who are really skeptical of everything and don't trust anybody. And then they have a lot of problems in their life because they're not giving the trust. So it's it's something I think that needs to be um, starting on, on yourself first, you know, that self-trust, self-awareness, and then you move it into the relationships with your loved ones, your spouse, and then to the workplace with your coworkers, and then from there onward. Yeah, and it's connected to honesty too, right? I mean, if you, you think something and you say something else, then I think that's what projects what you felt with your first husband. You know, you feel the feeling of uh, there's something wrong here because you can kind of sense what people are thinking, but you hear them saying something else. So yeah, and then that. again, you know, we're not trained to listen to our intuition. Right. We're not trained. And some people are really good at listening and they just know it without really maybe being so totally conscious of it. And other people just, you know, we're so disconnected from that. Um, yeah, it's interesting just because I think it has a lot to do with, you know, coming back at energy and like um, the energy of the earth and our planet and our every single living being here. One of the things that has disconnected human beings, this is kind of a funny story, but you'll, it'll make sense when you hear it. They have actually realized that this invention that came out in the 30s or 40s or whenever it was, has changed our entire trajectory as, as mankind. And the thing was the rubber sole on sneakers because it disconnected us from the resonance of the earth. Prior to that, it was leather shoes or it was, you know, whatever, or we'd be around barefoot, right? We don't do that anymore. So there's this disconnect. Right. And, uh, you know, I follow this thing called Schumann's Resonance very closely. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's mm -hmm. um, they've measured the electromagnetic frequency of the planet. And there was a professor in Germany, his name was Schumann, and it took him several years. He worked with his students to figure this out. And when they actually were able to measure it, it was 7.83 hertz. And that was, you know, what they measured as the electromagnetic frequency of the planet. Well, the interesting thing is humans, when they're in an alpha brainwave state, that's 7.83 hertz. And that's kind of a, you know, relaxed meditative state. And it was like the exact same number. And over the last few years, I would say, I think 2015, Schumann started doubling and this waves of different levels. So something is happening where our electromagnetic frequency of the planet is changing. And because we are all connected, it's changing us too. And we may, we, I mean, I don't know that science has the, the explanation for everything. But I think where we're heading is that we need to have a, a, a society, governments, companies, individuals that are very self-aware and looking to, you know, do something so that we all take care of each other, basically. Right. And humble and open to that, the fact that we don't know everything. Exactly. <laughs> we're all on this journey. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that is fascinating. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've definitely done my own personal journey from being very certain about everything as an ex-engineer, you know, uh, going to a place where I'm very open to that most things are possible after all. But what, what do you think when you, because you used to be somebody who looked for the best CEOs out there and, and you, I imagine you having a very clear image in your head of what a good CEO is. Did that image change for you after this whole life-changing experience? Um, probably the biggest thing that changed for me is, in, in terms of this question, is, is just that we're all human beings. 
you know, there is no perfect human being and, and everybody does the best that they can given the situation that they're in. <laughs> the research goes and shows that, you know, 5% of our uh, population is psychopaths. <laughs> this isn't going to be very popular, but if you look at the CEOs, I, I don't know what the exact number is off the top of my head, but around 30 or 40% of CEOs are psychopaths and why they have risen to the top, I don't know. Um, uh, we shouldn't get into that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, for all of you CEOs listening, you're part of the 70%, so don't worry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to this. Um, no, but I think uh, I am seeing an absolute shift right now in, in the way CEOs are thinking about how they're running their company. I, I'm just completing a, a global CEO culture report right now where I've been talking to hundreds of CEOs all over the world and just to see kind of the heartbeat of where they are in culture, what are they thinking about this? And uh, there's there's definitely some things coming forward from that, that one, culture is incredibly important for a company. A lot of these CEOs are struggling with how, how do we figure this one out because they're realizing things need to shift. And I think part of this is happening from the younger generations coming into the workplace. They want purpose-driven companies. They want to know what the company's going to do for them. They want to contribute. They want to do something. They want to be with companies that are going to do something good in the world. And I see that as a global shift for the most part, um, maybe not in every country, but you know, from my experience with, with developed countries, um, it seems like there is a definite mindset shift that it's, it's going now beyond the work-life balance. We've been talking about the work-life balance for a number of years and wellness, but I think it's going even beyond that because there is this underlying fear that you know we're messing up the planet. We got to do something about it. We got to fix this. And the only way we're going to do that is if we all come together. And how do we do that? We've got to trust each other, right? We come right. back to that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to find meaning in doing something for yourself because meaning is about helping other people or be or actually being helpful to other people, I guess. You know, being being significant to other people. Uh, that's that's what gives you a sense of meaning in what you do. And it's hard to do that if you if you're only looking for what's in for me. But if you start giving and starting, you know, starting looking for places where you can actually provide value and and thus becoming meaningful, you know, that's that's health, healthy for people, uh, I think. Well, I'm theorizing here, <laughs> but you know, in my view, that that's that I think is important. So this whole idea of looking for ways to make the world better that makes a lot of sense from just a personal health perspective, rather than trying to see you know what's in it for me. So I hear it sometimes from other people saying that the young generation they're always looking for what's in it for them. That may be true, but they are also doing the other thing you're saying, looking for some some way to impact the world in a, in a good way. And I think it's the latter that's actually providing the former, if that makes sense. Yeah, there, there's two mindsets out there. There's service to self and there's service to others. When you go the service to self path, then it's all about me and what can I get out of it? And yes, um, but we're seeing a shift now moving away from that to service to others or you know, how can we make an impact or how can we work together? Um, so that is definitely, if we're going to you know, narrow it down to kind of two different mindsets, that could be a way of looking at it. I, I think we're all human beings. We're all so complicated in the way we do things. But um, you know, there's, there's ways of simplifying it because we have a lot in common. If you think about it, and I, you know, there's how many people on the planet? 7.4 or 5 billion now? We all basically want the same things. You want to have love. You want to have peace. You want to have you know, happiness and joy. And you want to have abundance. And, and, and you boil it down to the core things. If we all want that, why can't we have it? That's a really good question to ponder right <laughs> it is it is 
And you can also add to that, well, and we are also one and the same. We just have this illusion of the ego that's very useful because it drives the individual nodes in society in good directions, but it's still an illusion. Mm. We're still one big organism in a way that's you know working together, which also is what made us so successful on the planet as a species, You know that we have this social fabric that we can work together in extremely complex, complex ways. Yeah, I guess I'm digressing into philosophy. <laughs> it's okay, we can go deep here. Wow, I'm like, okay, Walter, how deep are we going to go? Um, it actually brings In to our mind... 30 minutes. <laughs> I know, exactly. It brings to mind the, uh, you know, if you see a school of fish swimming, why don't they ever bump into each other? Or those, I don't remember the name of those birds, but they fly all around um, and they never bump into each other. And I got this explanation once and it was like, oh, of course it makes total sense. They share one consciousness. And because they're all parts of one consciousness they're able to move without you know bumping into each other as a group yeah. and um you know i think if we look at just evolution of, of people and, and mankind and humans we're not that connected or coordinated so that we're all doing the same thing but i think it's opening up that we are realizing that we are all connected and if you know one is sad then the other is going to be you know affected by that or um things like that um science is also showing how emotions are contagious you know, if you come in with a great attitude at work, you're going to have a positive influence on others. If you come in with a, you know, sour puss attitude, you're going to like repel people and be really negative and that that stuff spreads. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if to be fair to us uh, humans, we are doing a way more complex thing than flying in a group. I mean, we are doing some extremely impressive things here as a group where we figuratively speaking don't bump bump into each other. Uh, but we're creating these amazing inventions, we're solving you know, different kinds of health issues and we're inventing cars and planes and computers. So we are doing something right, you know, if, if to be fair to us uh, yeah. humans. Um, but, uh, but just if, to bring it back to the, to the question of trust, I think there's also the, the type of trust that is not explicit. It's not, you know, we're not, we don't think about it consciously, but we have this, these layers of trust subconsciously also, which without which nothing would work basically, because you know we need to trust people that this building will hold up and you know uh, this air is okay to breathe. <laughs> you know, there's a bunch of things that we just kind of subconsciously trust or intuitively trust. Uh, but how do you think this differs across the world? Do you think it's um, different in different countries and different parts of the world, or do you think it's uh, the same? So I'll answer this in two parts. One is, yes, there are layers of trust. And, and the way I'm seeing things at this point is there's kind of four layers of trust. You've got the individual trust, your self-trust. You've got relationship trust. So that's, you know, trust to others that are close to you, whether it's your family, spouses, coworkers. Then we have organizational trust. And that's kind of, you know, in the companies or in the workplaces, um, companies nowadays have taken over like the tribes it's where most people are spending most of their waking hours and we come together as a group to work together right and then from there we go into societal trust and that's where we talk about governments and our systems and our institutions so there's those four layers of trust um i don't know if you're familiar you probably have heard of richard barrett and the barrett values center so he they, they do this amazing work on measuring values and with countries they've gone to you know measuring values in different countries and at one point he was telling me that they were measuring values and he thought of course the democracy the democ democratic countries were the ones that were going to be you know having the the strongest ratings and it turned out to be false 
And what ended up, what they discovered in looking at rating the values of these countries was that the leaders that were trusted the most had the strongest government. So it didn't matter what the structure was. It could be a dictatorship. It could be, you know, any sort of structure. But if they trusted the leaders, then they seemed to be doing a lot better. So, you know, when we're looking at trust on a global level, I think, you know, it really is a lot about um, the deeper levels of trust that we have to our governments, to our leaders, to our society. And if you look at Sweden and even all the Nordics, they always rate highest on all of these different surveys, right? Uh, innovation and well-being. They don't rate so high on engagement, actually. Um, but that, we won't get into that at the moment. Maybe but, not in trust in ourselves either. <laughs> I can imagine Jantelagen and all that. Yeah, there is that. But I think um, in general, there's a high level of trust for the systems and for the governments. And so it tends to function fairly well here compared to a lot of other countries. Um, so I think, you know, you can see that as a reflection of how how the society, how the people in the country trust the leaders and, and the governments. Yeah, and I think that the human part of it, I, I guess, is that there is, as you say, there's one type of trust for people and then there are there's another type of trust. I mean, even the monetary system is just a system of, a system of trust, really, uh, outsourced to, <laughs> to numbers. Uh, so there are, of course, different types. But, but I think the, the type of trust that we're talking about here and that, that we can really use and benefit from in, in creating good leadership and, and health in the workplace. And, and also, as you said, the, the tribes that are our companies, which I think is a great way of, of looking at uh, leadership and, and companies. But that that is um, <coughs> that is a type of trust that we really need to uh, to work with and, and, and establish. And, and uh, regardless of if we leave it in a dictatorship or, or, a, or a, a, a democratic society, that type of trust to, for humans, that's, a, that's an extremely potent tool if we can uh, manage that well. Yeah, and I think, again, it's it's really about being aware, conscious, deliberate in how we want to work with things. So, for example, for many years now, I've been working with culture and um, values and purpose and trust, all of those things in a company. And um, the more deliberate a leader can be about it, the more they actually can have the results that they want to see. It's almost like building the culture in different layers. Um, and I think... I, I have defined this as kind of enlightened leaders, leaders that understand there is power in the people coming together and working together. Um, and then, you know, we have a lot of leaders who are looking. They they know something doesn't feel quite right or they want to do things differently, but they may not know exactly how to get there. So they're searching to try and find the right answers. And then we've got the what I call the old dinosaurs that are, you know, <laughs> they want to keep things the way it's always been. And they're just a dying breed and they literally are dying off right now. So um, I think, you know, it's just coming back to this awareness of the self-trust, the the organiz- or the relationship trust, the organizational trust, and then also the societal trust. And if we start by ourselves as an individual and what we can do, because oftentimes you'll hear, oh, there's so many problems in the world. What can I do? I'm just one person, right? One person can't do everything, but one person can certainly do a lot. And let's start with yourself. And be aware of that and how can you have really good relationships and what can you do to find the joy in your life? You know, find your purpose, find why are you here and then build on that. And that's also our role in the big life, right? Exactly. Doing our work there. And that's also one one of the big, great uses of the ego, this great illusion. Well, uh, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. And you are one of the speakers at Mindburst also. 
and uh, I'm very much looking forward to uh, seeing you there. Absolutely. I appreciate this, and it'll be great to be able to share and be involved in and experience Mindverse too. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks. Thank you for listening. For tickets to the event and more information about Mindburst, visit mindburst.se.